The following message was recorded at Shades Valley Community Church in Homewood, Alabama. For more information and resources from Shades Valley, please visit us at shadesvalley.org. I invite you to open your Bibles to Philippians chapter 1 if you haven't done so already. I, I recognize that on the grand scale of life, I am still a young man. Uh, But there are moments already that force me to reckon with the fact that I'm not as young as I once was. Uh, For instance, the first time that I took my children to one of those trampoline parks, you're familiar with these places you go and there's like trampolines and broken bones everywhere. (laughs) The first time I took them there, I bragged the whole drive there about my mad backflip skills that I'd learned from my sister growing up. And and so when, when we arrived... The moment came to put my words into action. See, for my kids, it was not enough to say that I could do these things. My children wanted a demonstration, and they got one. And I spent the next 24 hours in bed regretting all of my life decisions. (laughs) But here's the deal, Shades. Like, after our time in Philippians last week, I... I kind of felt towards Paul, who's writing this letter, I I kind of felt towards him the way my children felt towards me. Like, I hear your words, Paul, but I want to see them in action. Do you remember Paul's words from last week? In verses 3 to 11, Paul told us that it is right for him to feel joy even amidst affliction and opposition. It's right for him to feel joy because he said, Jesus is my joy, and I've always got Jesus. God, through the Spirit, is giving me Jesus, past, present, and future. Jesus is my joy. I've always got Jesus, so I've always got joy. Even amidst opposition and affliction, joy is right. And he prayed that this would not only be true for him, but it would be true for the Philippians too. He knows they're facing opposition and affliction. And Paul prays, I pray that you will know what's vital. That's Christ. The worth of knowing him surpasses everything else in life. I pray that you will treasure him above all things. I pray that your joy will be in him, even amidst opposition and affliction. And we even saw an example in Paul. I don't know if you remember this. Well, we saw an example of practices that we can embrace through which the Holy Spirit will work to shape the very desires of our heart. Practices that the Spirit works through to make joy in Jesus our treasure above all. Paul says we always have Jesus. Jesus is our joy, so we always have joy. Philippians, it's right for you as well to have joy amidst affliction and opposition. It's right for you as well, Shades. That's what we heard Paul say. That's what we heard Paul pray. But I want to see the backflip, Paul. Like, like I want to see a demonstration. I've heard what you say. I've heard your prayers. But I want to see what this actually looks like. When you actually face affliction, Paul, how does joy take action? Paul, I want to see joy in action. Shades, lest we think that this is all just talk and wishful prayers. In verses 12 to 18, Paul aims to show us his joy in action as he faces opposition from outside the church and as he faces affliction inside of the church. He's going to show us his joy in action. And shades, we need to see Paul's joy in action. 
we need to see we need, as an example for all throughout this book, Paul's going to hold himself up as an example. He'll hold Christ up as an example. He'll hold Timothy up as an example. He'll hold a man named Epaphroditus up as an example. He's doing this repeatedly throughout the book, and he's doing it right here. We need to see an example in Paul of joy in action so that joy in Jesus might be active in us. We need to see his example so that when we face opposition from from the culture that surrounds us, or we face affliction and divisions within the church, we will know what it looks like. We'll know how joy takes action. We will know how to shine forth a joy that's distinct and different, that displays the supreme worth of Christ to the world. You remember that's why Paul's writing this entire letter in the first place? He's writing this letter to encourage Philippi amidst the opposition they are facing to display the supreme worth of Christ to the world. They do that by having an unshakable, unbreakable joy in him. The world doesn't know anything about an unshakable, unbreakable joy. A flimsy and flippant joy. Joy that's completely dependent upon the circumstances that surround them. And our surrounding circumstances are not so awesome right now. And most people are joyless as a result. Paul says, not so for you, because your supreme treasure is secure. It's Christ. You've got him. He's your joy. Hang on to that. No matter what your circumstances are, hang on to Christ and show the world Christ is worth more than everything that's crashing around you. All the opposition, all the affliction, anything getting taken out of your life, show the world that Christ is worth more, and in him you have an unbreakable and unshakable joy. Shades, we need to see Paul's joy in action so that joy in Jesus might be active in us. Empowered by the Holy Spirit of God. Joy is a fruit of the Spirit. Galatians 5.22, anybody memorize that one as a kid? Or you remember the song, Fruit of the Spirit's not a coconut? Anybody? Fruit of the Spirit is love, joy. I want you to know, like this morning, as we talk about joy being active in you, we're going to talk about what that looks like, how it takes action. We're going to talk about what we do. But all of that needs to fall under this framework of, of I'm not, in, in everything I say that we are to do for joy to be active, I'm not saying, all right, Shades, let's muster up our own power, slap on a happy face in the midst of opposition and suffering, and let's, let's have joy Joy is a fruit of the Spirit. It's a work of the Holy Spirit. I'm saying, let's be active, not in our own power, but let's take action in dependence, in faith, in trust upon the Spirit's power. Let's take action trusting that the Holy Spirit will provide the power that's going to produce the fruit of joy. That's how Paul frames everything. We're going to spend a whole week talking about this by the time we get to Philippians 2.12. Everything, every time you ever hear us talk about taking action, doing something, you need to see it through the lens of Philippians 2.12, where Paul says, work out your own salvation. You do it, Philippi. You do it, Shades. Do these things so that joy takes action in you. You do it. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. God working in you does not eliminate your action. It empowers it. 
Philippi, you can take action to have joy because you can trust the Spirit will empower it in you. You can work because God is at work in you. So hear all of this under that framework, Shades. As we talk about what does it look like for joy to take action in us, we're talking about what does it look like for the Spirit to empower and us to step out and trust that he's going to empower this joy in us. We need to see Paul's joy in action so that joy in Jesus might be active in us. What does joy in action look like? Paul shows us the very heart of it. I want us to see the heart of it, and then we're going to play it out in three really practical ways. He shows us the very heart of joy in action in verse 12. Let's see it together. Paul writes, I want you to know. I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. I want you to know. The Philippians knew what had happened to Paul. Like they knew he was in prison. They knew, as we're going to learn in just a little bit, they knew there were rival preachers in Rome that were trying to cause him even more distress while he's in prison. Like they knew what was going on. In fact, they're concerned for him. They want to know how Paul's doing because all of this sounds horrible. Like throughout the course of this letter, we're actually going to learn that they had sent a gift out of concern for him. They sent a gift to help support him while he's in prison. They sent it there in the hands of one of their own members, Epaphroditus. They're worried about Paul. I mean, surely his, his situation is nothing but bad news for him personally. And surely his situation is nothing but bad news for the advance of the gospel through Paul's missionary work. How, how can the gospel make progress through Paul if he's in chains? And so Paul says, Philippi, I know you've heard about what's happened to me. I know you're concerned. You want to know how I'm doing. I want you to know what's really happened, how I'm really doing. And to tell you that, I've got to talk about how the gospel is doing. To, to paraphrase the theologian Karl Barth, if you ask Paul, how are you doing? He's going to talk to you about how the gospel's doing. Because in his mind, they're the same. And that's what he does right here. He says, Philippi, I want you to know what's really going on. Everything, everything that you have heard has happened to me. All of it that you're concerned about, it has really actually served to advance the gospel. The Greek word for really right there, malang, it, it literally means rather. And that's the sense it carries right here. In other words, Paul is emphasizing, rather than what you probably think, rather than you thinking all of this has hindered my mission in the progress of the gospel, rather it's really caused the gospel to advance. Prokopain. It means progress. The gospel's made, it's going to be important in a second. I'm not just telling you that for fun. All right? If the gospel has really progressed. Philippi, my imprisonment, Rival preachers trying to cause me distress, opposition from outside the church, affliction from within it, all of that is serving the progress of the gospel, the magnification of Christ, Jesus lifted high, glorified. That's what the gospel is to Paul. It's the proclamation of Christ crucified, dead, risen, and reigning. It's the gospel about, it's the good news about Christ's glory. That's, that's what he calls it in 2 Corinthians 4.4. 4. It's the gospel of the glory of Christ. 
And because of this, because everything that's happened to him is increasing the glory of Christ, sending it forth, making it progress, because of that, at the end of verse 18, Paul's going to say, he rejoices. Shades, this is the heart of joy in action. Joy reinterprets all of life through the lens of the glory of Christ. This is the heart. Joy re I'm talking about joy in Jesus. Christian joy. Joy reinterprets all of life through the lens of the glory of Christ. Philippi's heard what's happened to Paul, but he's reinterpreting all of those events for them. And he's doing it through the lens of the glory of Christ. That's what joy in Jesus does. That's joy in action. Paul says, Jesus is my joy, so I've got to see the events of my life with him, not me, at the center. Over the past couple of weeks, I have mentioned this fellow named Copernicus to you a couple of times. Never been in my notes until now. Um, I don't know why. It's just what Jesus has had on my heart, apparently. Copernicus was a scientist, a scientist that discovered that the sun's at the center of the universe, not the earth, not us, right? We've known that for how long? Hundreds of years. And we still have not used that information to reinterpret the way we talk about the world. The sun rises and the sun sets. We may know that the sun's not moving, at least not within the context of our solar system. But we haven't used that truth to reinterpret our lives. We may know that the glory of Christ is supposed to be the center of our life. But do we actually use that truth to reinterpret our lives? I told you we need a Copernican revolution in theology where we're not the center but God is. A Copernican revolution in ecclesiology, the way we think about the church where we're not the center but God is. Right here we need a Copernican revolution in meology. I made that one up. It's when we think about ourselves, we're not at the center, but, but Christ is. That's how Paul is reinterpreting all of his life. In other words, Philippi, can I rejoice in prison? Well, Paul says, is Christ being glorified? Because that's my joy. Philippi, can I rejoice when I'm afflicted by rival preachers? Well, is Christ being glorified? Because that's my joy. Joy reinterprets all of life through the lens of the glory of Christ. That's what joy in Jesus does. That's joy in action. And Paul wants Philippi to see that joy in action. Isn't that how he started verse 12? I want you to know. I want you to see this. I think he's just as much talking to us, Shades. He wants us to see joy in action. Why? So that joy in Jesus may be active in us. So that we'll do the same thing he's doing. Reinterpret all of life through the lens of the glory of Christ. I know that's what he wants because of verse 25 later on. If you skip down there, he's going to say that everything he does for Philippi, it's aimed at their progress. Procopane. Told you it was coming back. Their progress, same word he used to describe what's going on with the gospel up in verse 12. Everything he does is aimed at their progress and joy in the faith. See what Paul is saying. It's the progress of the gospel, Christ glorified, that gives Paul joy. 
He wants the Philippians to make progress in Jesus being their joy too. Paul wants us to see his joy in action so that joy in Jesus might be active in us. So let's see it. We've seen the heart of it. I told you it's going to play out in three really practical ways. Let's, let's see Paul's joy take action in verses 13 to 18. It's going to take action three times, showing us three ways we can reinterpret our lives through the lens of the glory of Christ. So let's see joy take action first in verses 12 and 13. I want to reread verse 12 to you, and then we'll keep going. Paul says, I want you to know, brothers and sisters, what's happened to me has really served to progress, to the progress, to advance the gospel. So that it has become known, here's how it's making the gospel progress, so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. How is Paul's imprisonment actually advancing the gospel? Paul says, let me tell you how. Let me tell you about what's going on inside of this jail. The gospel is spreading inside of here. It's spreading through the imperial guard. The imperial guard in Rome, if that indeed is where he is, would have been made up of roughly 9,000 soldiers. These, these men were well-paid. They had pension packages. They were honored. But one of their not-so-honorable tasks was that they often had to guard various prisoners like Paul. A lot of times they would even actually be literally chained to the prisoner. And Paul takes that situation and says to Philippi, Philippi, I know that in this situation it may look like I'm the captive, but in Paul's mind he's like, I just got a captive audience right here. And so these guards, the very means of keeping Paul in, become the very means of getting the gospel out. Paul shares the gospel with them. Or Perhaps they hear it when Paul. Paul was able to receive visitors, and as he discusses the gospel with them, maybe they overhear it. Or maybe these guards just made the simple mistake of asking Paul, what are you in for? That's an open door. Paul would never shut up about that. Like, no matter how it happened, Paul says, Philippi, don't see me as a captive unable to live for Christ. No, let joy in Jesus reinterpret my life. See my imprisonment through the lens of the glory of Christ. Jesus has become known throughout the whole imperial guard. Apparently guards gossip. And apparently some of them have even come to faith. Because listen to how Paul closes this letter. In Philippians chapter 4 and verse 22, he says, All the saints greet you, especially those of Caesar's household i got to believe he's smirking as he writes that. Especially, especially those of Caesar's household. Like, he's smir- like, like Caesar may think I'm captive, but I have taken captive my captivity for Christ. They may have think that they seized me, but I have seized this captivity for the glory of Jesus, and that is my joy. Paul's joy in Jesus is taking action, reinterpreting life through the lens of the glory of Christ, and here we see the first way it can do the same in us. Number one, joy takes action by seizing your captivity for Christ. I'll unpack it. Joy takes action by seizing your captivity for Christ. 
What in your life feels like daily captivity? Like I'm, I'm locked in this situation. I don't really want to be, but I don't really have a, a choice. I've got to pay bills. I'm locked into my job. Got to pay bills. Got to, got to eat somehow. What feels like daily captivity? Your, your job? Your family? Your singleness? Your marriage? Being a parent? Being a stay-at-home mom or, or dad? Your, your school? Like what? What feels like captivity to you? What, what feels like it's just wasting your time and draining away your life? What makes you feel like you're in a holding pattern? That if you could just, if you could just escape that day-to-day situation, you could get on with real life. Perhaps really make an impact for, for Christ in the kingdom. So many people, so many people, Christians included, live their lives like they're captives. But here the shape, Paul really was a captive. He really had no escape. I mean, would, would it not have to feel like Paul, like his life was being wasted? I'm supposed to be out there sharing the gospel amongst the Gentiles, traveling, being on mission, giving my, my life. Would it not feel like his life is being wasted? But yet Paul took his captivity captive. He may have been the one originally seized, but he seized his captivity for Christ. This is what joy in Jesus does. And this is what it can do by the power of the Spirit in you. How might God be calling you to seize your captivity for Christ? How how might you reinterpret your job through the lens of the glory of Christ? Like, look, Looking at your job, not with you at the center, but with Christ at the center. Perhaps he has actually placed you there precisely for his glory. I mean, for Paul, perhaps Caesar's house wasn't going to get reached any other way than him being put in prison. Who's not going to get reached any other way than by you being divinely placed precisely where you are? Seize your job for the glory of Christ. I, th- I think most of you in here know who, who Bill Ferris is, one of our members, brothers. And most of you probably know that Bill cleans houses and businesses for a living. And you probably also know that he near about prays for every single person whose home and business he cleans. Seize his job for the glory of Christ. Reinterpret your captivity through the lens of the glory of Christ. Seize your job for the glory of Christ. Seize your singleness for the glory of Christ. Paul talks all about that. 1 Corinthians 7. Like, if you're single, invest your life in your kingdom calling. Pursue opportunities that married people with kids can only dream about. Seize your singleness for the glory of Christ. See, seize your marriage for the glory of Christ. Don't spend time wishing you were single so you could do more for Jesus. Seize your marriage for the glory of Christ. Sacrifice yourself for your spouse to show the world what the sacrificial love of Christ for the church looks like. Put the gospel on display. Seize your marriage 
for the glory of Christ. Seize your parenting, your being a student, your family, your daily grind, whatever it is. Don't be held captive by it. Take it captive for Christ. This is joy in Jesus taking action. Reinterpreting all of life through the lens of the glory of Christ. Joy takes action by seizing your captivity for Christ. But that's not all. Joy is not done taking action, not in Paul and not in us. See, joy take action for a second time. Look at verse 14. Verse 14. Paul says, and most of the brothers and sisters, you'll notice that I do that every single time I encounter the word brothers. It's the Greek word adelphoi. It was the general way that they referred to a group of people, men and women. It's not meant to be limiting at all. It's kind of the way for a long time we use the word guys. Hey, you guys, we just mean, hey, you people in general. I'm not getting into the politics of whether or not we should talk like that. I'm just saying that's the way the language has been used. Man, it just got tense in here. Just saying that's the way they use the Greek. So talking about Christians in general, okay? And most of the brothers and sisters, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Paul says, Philippi, uh, guards hearing the gospel, that's, that's not the only effect of my imprisonment. Oh, no. Philippi, that's what's happening inside the jail. Let me tell you what's happening outside the jail. The only way Paul would know about this is with other Christians telling him. He was able to receive visitors. We talked about that just a second ago, and they've told him about this. The other Christians in Rome, their confidence, the word is literally linked to faith or trust. Their trust, their confident trust in the Lord has been increased. Paul says, not their confident trust in me. No, their confident trust in God because of what they see him doing in my imprisonment. Paul is saying that the Christians in Rome have seen how God is faithfully empowering him, even amidst opposition, and that increases their faith, their trust, their confidence that God will empower them even amidst opposition. And so they become bold. The word literally means daring. like they become daring to speak. They dare to speak the word of God without fear, even in a place where people are getting thrown in prison. That doesn't intimidate them. It inspires them. My God's powerful enough for Paul to keep on declaring the gospel in prison. Surely I can do it outside. He can empower me out here. They dare to speak the word of God even more without fear. And Paul says... That's how what has happened to me is advancing the gospel. That's what's making me rejoice. Not just what's going on in my cell, but the effects it's having outside of it. Paul's joy in Jesus is taking action, reinterpreting his life through the lens of the glory of Christ, and here we see the second way it can do the same in us. Number two, joy takes action by seeing beyond your cell. Or you could say yourself. Joy takes action by seeing beyond yourself for Christ. Paul isn't throwing a pity party due to his circumstances. He lifts his eyes up beyond his cell, beyond himself, to see the ripple effect of what God is doing. 
Other Christians have told him about what God is doing. They've told him God is empowering. He's emboldening our brothers and sisters. And Paul sees that and Paul rejoices. Saw beyond himself, saw beyond himself to how Christ was being glorified. Do we do the same? Like I wonder how many times seeing how God is at work through our circumstances is missed. I, I wonder how many times we miss how God is at work through our circumstances simply because we do not look beyond ourselves. Like all we see is ourselves and our circumstances. So we miss what he's doing through them. Shades, I, I, confession, moment of confession, I can be so guilty of this. I can throw a pity party with the best of them. I, I, I can whine about how what I do doesn't make a difference and my life isn't having any impact. I'm insignificant, blah, 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 self-obsession, blah. And it doesn't matter what my wife or my friends t- say to me, trying to get me to, to look up and behold what the Lord is doing. I refuse to see beyond the cell of myself. I want to find joy just here. Oh, shades, this is where we need joy in Jesus to take action, for it to raise our heads, to see beyond ourselves and rejoice in all the ways Christ is being glorified through our lives. If you're thinking, Christ isn't being glorified through my life, it's probably because you're not looking up beyond yourself. Because I have this promise in Scripture for every single person who has believed in Jesus Christ, that he causes all things to work together for the good of those who love God and are called according to his purpose. The very next verse of Romans 8, Romans 8, 29, makes clear that that good purpose is glorifying his son through you. He is working everything in you, around you, and through you for the purpose of ultimately glorifying his son. Look up, Shay beyond the cell of yourself. Listen to the church around you. Let the church help you. The church was helping Paul to do this. He wouldn't have known what was going on had people not been speaking this into his life. Let's help one another, shades. Let's help one point out to one another how Christ is at work in you and through you. I got a text last night. Then uh, this person did not text me in order for me to have a convenient sermon illustration this morning. This is not in my notes. It just came to my mind. I got a text last night of somebody just saying that, saying, Jonathan, I love you. Here's a way that I see God at work through you. My eyes just shut up and rejoiced. Let's do this for one another. Help each other see how God is at work in and through our, our lives. This is joy in Jesus taking action. Reinterpreting all of life, I'm going to say it a million times till you memorize it, through the lens of the glory of Christ. Joy takes action by seeing beyond yourself to what Christ is doing in and through you. That's not all. Joy's not done taking action in Paul or in us. Let's see one more time. Let's see joy take action a third and final time in verses 15 to 18. Look at it with me. Paul says, some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I'm put here for the defense of the gospel. 
But the former, those proclaiming Christ out of envy and rivalry, the former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition. Not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed. And in that I rejoice. The Roman Christians have been emboldened to preach Christ without fear. But Paul knows the Philippians have heard that some of those, there's just two groups included in those, emboldened, emboldened for different reasons. He knows that they have heard that some of those preachers are proclaiming Christ out of a sense of envy, rivalry towards Paul. They're, they're hoping to afflict him even more while he's in prison. Why? Why are these... Preachers, they're proclaiming Christ. Paul doesn't rebuke their message. He has no qualms about rebuking people's message when it is off point. I mean, in Galatians, he says, if anybody comes to you preaching a different Christ, let them be accursed, cut off. Nothing's wrong with their message. They just have this envy, this personal rivalry with Christ. Why? I think, I think Acts 28 gives us a hint. You can, you can read it later. You don't have to turn there right now. But in Acts 28, you can read about when Paul arrives in Rome as a prisoner. And when he's getting close to the city, the Christians in Rome hear that he's being brought there in chains. And they're so excited, they come out to meet him at a place called the Three Taverns. That's 40 miles outside the city. My car gets like 25 miles to the gallon. I'm not driving 40 miles outside of Birmingham to greet any of you. They walk 40 miles to greet, to greet Paul. Paul would never been to Rome. He'd written them, the greatest letter that's ever been written in the history of the world. But he'd written them, and they loved him already, so they go meet him. And after visiting with him, we know, he's already told us, they are emboldened to speak the gospel all the more. I'm willing to bet that this is what made these rival preachers jealous. Look, look, look at how much people love Paul, how popular he is. And we've been here this whole time, and he just shows up, and they run out to meet him. You remember, you remember when he wrote that letter to us about how much he wanted to come here and reap a harvest among us, preach the gospel among us? Well, he can't do that because he's in prison. Let's preach, and we'll reap an even bigger harvest than he ever could because he's in chains. Take that Paul. Shades, woe to us if we ever preach Christ this way. Because we're jealous and envious of other Christians around us. Because we want to be seen as the, the most powerful, the most popular. Woe to us if we become envious of other Christian communities in Birmingham, and that's the reason we do what we do. Woe to us if we do this as individuals. Do we not do this all the time? You meet a Christian who, like, they worship passionately with their whole heart, and because they worship differently than us, we got to kind of say things to tear them down, to make us feel better. We're envious, jealous. People are going to look at them as more spiritual than us. We meet someone, they got 
more Bible knowledge than we do, so we've got to say things to tear them down. I hear another pastor that's a way better preacher than I am, and you're listening to their podcast, so I've got to pick at them and say things to try to tear them down to make myself feel spiritually superior. Woe to us if we preach Christ like this. This is what's going on with these rival preachers. And so Paul looks beyond his cell and he sees two groups of people. He sees people emboldened to preach Christ out of love because they know, that's what verse 16 says, they know, they know that Paul has been put there in prison. That's the word, literally, put there. Who's he been put there by? By God. They know that Paul has been put there by God for the defense of the gospel. And so this emboldens them. But Paul also sees an envious group of rival preachers who think that's what verse 17 says. They don't know. They think, or the word could literally be translated, imagine. And that's why we normally get envious because of the things we think up and imagine, not because of things we know. They imagine that they'll inflict Paul by doing what he can't, preach the gospel in Rome. And what does Paul say is the result of both of these groups in verse 18? What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed. And in that, I rejoice. He's not rejoicing because he's got rival preachers coming up against him. He's not happy about that. He's not slapping a fake smile on something here. But he rejoices that Christ is proclaimed. Paul's joy in Jesus is taking action, reinterpreting all of his life through the lens of the glory of Christ. And here we see the third way it can do the same in us. Number three, joy takes action by celebrating what increases Christ. Joy takes action by celebrating what increases Christ. I've got an addendum to this one. Even, or maybe especially, when it decreases you. Joy takes action in celebrating what increases Christ, even when it decreases you. In that statement, you can probably hear an echo of the words of John the Baptist from the Gospel of John, chapter 3 and verse 30. John the Baptist's followers were leaving him to go follow after Jesus, and this is what he said. He said, this joy of mine is now complete. He, Jesus, must increase and I must decrease. This is my joy. It's complete when this happens. It reaches its goal. My goal is for Christ to increase, me to decrease, and that's what gives me joy. I think that those words profoundly shaped Paul because in him, right here, we're seeing joy takes action by celebrating what increases Christ even when it decreases Paul. This is ultimately why Paul celebrates everything. This is why he celebrates his imprisonment. This is why he celebrates emboldened preaching. It's even why he celebrates his rivals preaching. Because all of that is increasing Christ. Christ is increased. So I rejoice. This is what Paul sees God doing through everything in his life. I know that because of how he phrases it in verse 16. Look back at it. He says of himself there, I have been put here in prison for the defense of the gospel. I've been put here. Paul says, I'm here because God put me here. And it's, it's, 
He has me here for a reason, the advance of the gospel. Paul believed that God was sovereignly ruling and reigning over everything in his life. If he was there in prison, he'd been put there, not ultimately by Rome, but by God. And God had the same purpose for Paul in prison that he did outside of prison, the advance of the gospel, the glory of Christ. So Paul seized his captivity. He saw beyond his cell and he celebrated everything that increased Christ, even when it decreased himself. This does not mean, as I just said, it doesn't mean that Paul just put on a happy face, just pretended like everything was okay. No, Paul struggled in prison. Paul was hurt by rival preachers. All you got to do is read the ending of 2 Timothy to know that. It's really all over his writings. But especially just read the ending of 2 Timothy and you can see how much he was hurt. And he suffered. But simultaneously, he rejoiced because he knew that his sufferings were serving the advance of the gospel, the glory of Christ. This is why in 2 Corinthians 6.10, Paul describes Christians as a people who are sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. You know what that feels like. To to feel sorrow and joy at at the same time. Like you ever graduated from a school and you know that you're about to move away from friends, but you finally got the degree. Sorrowful, but rejoicing. You ever, you ever had a child move out or get married? Sorrowful, but rich. Well, some of you may be just rejoicing in that situation, but you know what I'm saying. You ever suffered, but seen Christ glorified? That's Paul. Sorrowful, yet rejoicing. This is not fake joy that slaps a smile on suffering. No, this is a deep joy that cannot be shaken by suffering. Because we believe that God has put us here for a reason. The glory of us. And even if we cannot see how that is possible, even if we cannot see how the suffering we are going through could possibly glorify Christ, we still believe that God is doing what he promised to do in Romans 8.28, using all things, even our suffering, for our good, for the glory of Christ, we believe that ultimately because of the cross. There has never been any greater suffering than the cross. Never been any greater act of evil than the murder of the sinless Son of God. And there has never been any greater display of the glory of Christ. If God can do that there, He can do it anywhere. So even when we can't see how our suffering could possibly be used for the glory, we cling to the cross as a promise. He did it here. He did it at the cross. He'll do it in my life through my cross. And in that, I have a joy that is unshakable and unbreakable because I celebrate what increases Christ even when it decreases me. Do we do this? Like if... If glorifying Christ in your job means that people around you are going to know you're a believer and they're going to be prejudiced against you, you're going to get passed over for promotions or maybe even get fired, can you celebrate what increases Christ? Even if it decreases you, I'm not saying slap a smile on it and don't be sorrowful, but sorrowful yet always rejoicing. 
If glorifying Christ in relationships means that some people will abandon you, it meant that for Paul. Read the end of 2 Timothy. If glorifying Christ in relationships means some will abandon you or find you annoying or narrow-minded, can you celebrate what increases Christ even if it decreases you? If glorifying Christ means mistreatment from other Christians who are jealous and envious, that's what Paul's experiencing. Can you still celebrate what increases Christ even if it decreases you? If glorifying Christ means sacrificing everything, doing what Paul says in Philippians 3, counting it all as loss, if it means that, will we still see the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus and celebrate what increases him even when it decreases us? Shades, this is joy in action. Reinterpreting all of life through the lens of the glory of Christ. Joy seizing our captivity for Christ. Joy seeing beyond the cell of ourself for Christ. Joy celebrating what increases Christ. This is joy in action. Has this joy, by the power of the Spirit, taken action in you? Amen.